Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. What do you get when you smudge one of the world's global business leaders and one of the UK's top army colonels? The answer? Business leadership under fire. Our special guests today are Pepin Denant and Richard Wesley OBE, and they wrote the book Business Leadership Under Fire. But before we dive in with Pepin and Richard, it's the Leadership Hacker News. Have you ever heard focus takes you where it takes you? Inspired by a blog by Seth Goding many years ago, he had a focus of depth of field. And I'll share a story with you around how and why focus is so important. Picture the scene. There are two runners. Both have exactly the same capability, exactly the same pace, and the same injury, an injured left toe. The runner who's concentrating on how much their left toe hurts will be left in the dust by the one who's focused on winning, even if the winner's toe hurts just as much. Hurt, of course, is a matter of perception. Most of what we think about is. We have a choice about where to aim that focus, that aim that lens of our attention. We can relieve past injustices, settled old grudges, nurse festering sores. We can imagine failure, build up its potential for destruction and calculate its odds. Or we can imagine the generous outcomes that we're working on, feel gratitude, feel compassion for those that got us here and revel in the possibilities of what's next. We have an automatic focus on instinctive and cultural choices, and that focus isn't the only ones that are available to us. Of course, those are somewhat difficult to change, which is why so few people manage to do so. But there's no work that pays off better in the long run than focusing on positive and progressive outcomes. Remember the stories that you tell yourself. Your story is your story but you don't have to keep reminding yourself of the story you've told yourself before. If that story doesn't help you change positively for the future, it's probably not the right story in the first place. So focus on the future stories that you want to tell yourself, and guess what? Those stories become a reality. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. Really looking forward to our conversation with Richard and with Pepin. Let's dive into the show. I'm joined by two very special guests on today's show. Pepin Denant is a business executive with 30 years experience successfully leading and restructuring companies in challenging situations as CEO and chairman. Born in Amsterdam, Pepin has lived in a number of countries over the years, including Turkey, Ireland, Switzerland, South America, and UK where he attended university, and now lives with his family in Germany. And he's joined by Richard Wesley, a military crossholder who's commanded soldiers and operations at every rank from lieutenant through to colonel. And environments of desperate situations, including Albania and Afghanistan and the Balkans. He retired from the army in 2010, having been responsible for pre-deployment training for forces 
bound for Iraq and Afghanistan. Between them, they teamed up and wrote the book Business Leadership Under Fire, Nine Steps to Rescue and Transform Organizations. Pepin and Richard, welcome to the Leadership Hacker Podcast. Hi, Steve. Yeah, good morning. Happy to be uh, with you. Me too. Hi, Richard. Hi, Steve. So, a little bit about your backstories independently, and then we maybe find out how you kind of collided to come together to write the book. So, Pepin, a little bit about your backstory. Well, after leaving university, I um, somehow ended up in Germany. And um, after spending three years at McKinsey, which was my paid business school, as I like to say, I landed my first uh, CEO role in Eastern Germany, which was then just, uh, you know, uh, unified with Western Germany. And I ran a company which had a revenue of 50 million euros, but also losses of 50 million euros. So that was my first contact with the challenge of rescuing and transforming businesses in challenging situations. And I had so much fun. I mean, obviously, it was very tough at the time, but I had so much fun doing that, that I have kind of uh, never left that type of um, challenge. Brilliant. And I guess it's the the thrive of being able to rescue those firms that has kept you in that space, right? That, plus the fact that, um, you know, these are environments where you need to learn because if you're not willing to listen and learn, you know, you're going to fail. These are always very, let's say, complex situations. They're fast moving, they're fluid. And, um, you know, it really kind of sharpens your skills. And obviously, you know, some cases have been more successful than others. You never have only just big successes. But I thoroughly enjoy helping teams be the best version of themselves and, and you know, rescue these companies, rescue these organizations. Yeah. And Richard, before um, what you do now, have you always been a military man? Yes, I, uh, I joined the, the military pretty much straight after school and spent 25 years as an infantry officer um, serving around the world, um, almost exclusively in operations and training roles. I managed to avoid um, the major staff roles and the Ministry of Defense for my 25 years. Uh, and then I left um, earlier than I, um, I perhaps needed to, but I was ready to move. Uh, and I spent the last 12 years working in a number of appointments in, um, in commercial companies and now run my own consulting business. Great. So when did the stars align for you to both meet? Well, I had been always interested in the application of military best practices in business. And I had met about four years ago, a gentleman called Tim Collins, um, the famous Tim Collins. And, uh, you know, I had been discussing these ideas that I had about this crossover between the military and, and business. And he introduced me to uh, to Richard. That's how the two of us met. And then, Richard, from your perspective, what was the moment you thought, how we're going to do some business together, we're going to write a book? How did that come about? Yeah, so Tim, uh, I was working with Tim at the time, and he mentioned Pepin and um, said, would you be interested in a conversation? I said, well, I'm always interested in conversations, and uh, I generally like meeting new and successful people. So, um, you know, Pepin and I had initial discussions and then some supplementary conversations and started looking at some sort of solution for leaders. Um, it was a discussion over a number of months, really, and then um, the book was a nice fallout because at that time we were in lockdown and uh, I think Pepin and I were both looking for 
um, something else to, um, to to occupy our minds, and um, uh, and hence the uh, hence the book. And of course, when you think of the role that the military play versus the role that the commercial enterprises play, there's such a lot of crossover in the sphere of leadership, isn't there? Yeah, I think you know when we sat down, um, and and this is interesting because as Richard just said, you know we we started working together without actually having physically met each other. We were basically. You know, we got to know each other digitally and, and spend a lot of our early relationship uh, on, on Zoom. So, you know, we used these these um, experiences, both Richards and myself, to kind of um, look at our learnings, our insights, you know, from good and bad experiences, as well as, as insights from research we did on successful leadership cases, as well as fatal leadership cases, and, and developed from that the concept for you know for the book, including obviously the nine steps, um, and Richard being you know a very hands-on guy, and me also ultimately being somebody who's uh, you know a hands-on executive. We I think developed a book which is very much rooted in real-life experience, has a down-to-earth approach. We believe is straightforward to understand because it's nine steps. Which, which, with which we try to really cover all angles that we believe is important for leaderships facing transformation challenges. And ultimately, we produced, we believe, a very practical guide for leadership when transforming organizations. Yeah, it's a very chronological approach to how leaders can really consider how to transform and continue to grow their business which we're going to dive into in a moment but i want to come to you first richard just to explore the parallels from military leadership to commercial leadership we've been very fortunate to have a number of major generals appear on the show already and the one thing that's been really consistent from them is that leadership as a behavior almost has been drilled from the very moment you join an organization. But actually, that's often le- learned in a commercial organization. I'd be interested in your spin on things. Very much so. I mean, the, the, the military has the luxury uh, of being able to devote time and resource to training and developing their people. Um, and officers go through the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, the motto is serve to lead. Um, and and behaviours are are really focused um, from the get go. So um, you know a young graduate who spent three or four years at university uh, in quite a selfish sort of environment is suddenly thrust into a very pressurised initial six weeks of a, of a year long course uh, where they're put under significant amount of pressure and strain to to behave in, in the right way. And, and it doesn't matter how good or well-prepared they think they are or how fit and robust or, or how intellectually gifted they are. By about day 10 of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, you are so stretched uh, physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, uh, you're quite exhausted and you have to reach out left and right and grab people and say, look, we need to work together here. This is not about me. This is about us. And so that team bonding, uh, which then translates into the leadership of that team, um, you know, uh, progresses. Um, and then and then going through your military career, you, you know, you are prepared for every new role you go. You're course trained and you are developed. And, and then at the collective level, you know, units or battalions or regiments um, will prepare for operations 
deploy on operations, recover from operations, and then start that 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 circle again, that that um, cycle. Of course, in the real world, in the commercial world, uh, um, companies don't have that luxury. You know, they are on operations twenty four seven, and so it 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 becomes really important at that stage that the leaders um, make time um, to develop their people and to nurture their talent. So um, I think there are things that, that both, both, both can learn from each other. Um, the final point I would say um, is that you know, business find themselves in very, very volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous um, circumstances most of the time and certainly now. And, and the military is designed for that VUCA um, uncertain uh, world. And so it, 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 to me, it's, it's, it's a natural progression for the military to talk to business because they're comfortable and are designed for that, that VUCA world. Yeah. And Pepin, I wonder from your experience of being chairman and CEO on a number of businesses, whether or not there's room for that preparation to take leaders out of the operation space and really immerse them into some intense training and support. Well, look, the practice in, in most corporations is unfortunately completely different to what Richard just described. In other words, people are not really prepared systematically uh, for leadership. And in the book, we talk about the so-called career uh, X point, which is an interesting phenomenon we've seen with uh, many failed leadership examples where people, you know, over time, they, they, they do learn initially and they advance in their career. But when you get to a certain level in organizations, you suddenly believe because of the fact that you're now a CEO, head of a big division, have been successful in the past, that you don't need to learn anymore. When the learning line crosses the career line, which keeps going up and the learning line flattens, we talk about the career X points. And that's when people basically start making mistakes in business. Yeah. yeah? And, and uh, that's why it's fascinating to look at the crossover because especially the British military, you know, very, very actively train their leaders to be, to be good. Not many businesses do it that way. It's more always, you know, advancement by chance, advancement by opportunities, but not so systematic. Yeah, that makes those sense. So let's dive into the book and the nine steps and maybe get some perspective from you as to how the steps within that book can help us. And Pepin, if we start with you, the first step in the book is that building platform. You call it establishing leadership. Tell us about that. So, Steve, you know, you you coach leaders, you coach people that run businesses, you know, so you're seeing a situation where there is an obvious problem with the business. Right. Market changing, financials are declining. For me, for us, when we defined the, the, the steps, especially the first step, we said, you know, this is an environment, this is an opportunity, this is a window where you take that situation and you call out a burning platform. And with that burning platform, you basically achieve two things. First of all, you establish yourself as the leader that's going to take charge of this situation. You know, that's about conveying the fact that you're a safe pair of hands having simple messages on you know what's what's happening and what's going to happen and projecting certainty as a leader in the sense of conveying to people you have a plan you're going to get this done you're going to save the situation so that's the establishing leadership part 
The other part, and this is very often something that you see with formerly successful businesses, you know, the, the organization, which is ultimately the people that work there, are in a comfort zone. That's very often the reason why the business is in trouble in the first place. And one of the things you need to really focus on is to galvanize the organization into action, into a change mode, by explaining why they need to change. And that's why it's so important to do that in the very first step. If you don't get people you know, mentally ready for small or big change, you're going to have trouble later on with the other steps. Yeah, complacency is a real killer in most organizations, but often people don't even realize they're in that comfort zone until others like you or I or yeah. other people on their team point it out to them and go, this is a problem. So step two, Richard, you call in the book Analysis and Determination of Mission Targets. So very much a, a military focus. Tell us how that translates. Yeah, so the, the military um, has a, a command f- philosophy called Mission Command, um, uh, what we would call, uh, you know, empowerment. Um, and it really, um, it really centers around telling your people what you want them to do and why, but not telling them how to do it because they should have the technical skills and they may well be uh, considerably more able than you to actually do the what. Um, what this chapter is about is really making sure that you understand the intent uh, of your boss or bosses or board or shareholders at whatever level, making sure that everything you do and all the direction that you give to your subordinates is in line with that. Um, and, and, and what's required here is real clarity, real clarity of vision to make sure you've got it right. Uh, and then clarity of expression to make sure that everybody, you know, from other board members down to the people on the shop floor really understand what you're about uh, and why you're doing this. So that's what it is. And, it, and it's it, it, the chapter two really digs into that idea of getting the big idea right and then conveying the message um, uh, as simply as possible to your, your people. And it's that simplicity that often gets lost in translation because my experience tells me that the more simple people can align to a common goal, purpose, mission, vision, the more likely they're going to achieve it. The more complex it becomes, then people lose that through a bit of diffusion. Yeah, and, and you know, Richard and I, we had a discussion about step one and two in the sense of what comes first. But we like to use the following analogy. I think, you know, if you're going to be the new chef of a restaurant, uh, before you actually get told, you know, what the what the goal is, what the mission is, it, it's good, that's step one, to, to get to know the kitchen and the team before you do that discussion. Mm. Why step one first and then step two? Yeah, it makes sense. There's been lots of debate about which comes first, and I think I concur with you, that you have to, it, well, if you just think of the chronological order, you get hired first before you decide what you're going to do. Exactly. And it, it follows that same principle, doesn't it? Yeah. And in step three, you talk about the evaluation of the environment. I, I quite like this theatre of operations. Tell us about that. You know, step three is, is um, it's ultimately a very big step, but we like to keep it simple and practical. It's the moment when you look as a leader closely at your competition or, in a military term, your enemy, as well as your, you know, your customers, your market that you are serving, or, in a military term, the environment that you're operating in. And we've seen... My own experience, learnings, you know, good and bad, but also from the research we did, we've seen that truly great business leaders never underestimate their competition. Everything they do is centered around staying ahead of the competition. And, you know, I talk about 
the degree of, of, of skill and business acumen. So what's important is to know your business very well from both an inside perspective and from an outside perspective. Know your strengths and weaknesses and those of your competition. Because very often when people develop strategies, and we'll talk about that in step four, you know, they, they overestimate their own strengths and they underestimate the, the strengths of their competition. An interesting under step three is the fact that you may find things, you may find out things about your business, about the competition, where the mission you've been set under step two becomes maybe not even only just difficult, but maybe even impossible. So, you know, we do write in the book that after step three, it may be necessary to revisit step two, depending on what you find out. Is it fair to say that there will be a continual revisiting of step two as their business and their firm or their their mission, if you like, starts to evolve? No, I think if you do it properly, and there's a great Chinese general called, called Sun Tzu who wrote a book, The Art of War, two and a half thousand years ago. You know, and, and in my experience, as he says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. But if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So in other words, if you do your homework properly and you really know your business well and you really know your competition well, I think you can then move on to the next steps. I think there could be that instant where you need to go back once to step two. Yeah, but at some point you just need to have done your homework. Otherwise, you're in trouble as a leader anyway. I suppose it plays to the philosophy of having no plan B. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. So in step four, I love the, the title of step four, Who Dares Wins. It's a very common used phrase in the military. I think this comes from the SAS, if my memory is correct. This is about strategy and tactics, Richard. Yeah, and step four. I mean, I I guess the the theme that runs through um, step four is that simplicity rules. Um, The the military uses the acronym KISS. You keep it simple, stupid, or keep it short and simple. Um, but, But that strategy for me is about getting the big ideas right. Uh, giving clear instructions to your people as to what you want them to do, supervising the execution, but not getting too close, and then having a good process for uh, lessons identified in order to inform best practice. And the chapter actually draws on some work by Michael Porter, where he talks about cost leadership, differentiation, and focus uh, in niche markets in order to ensure that you know, you, um, you you can deal with your competitors, but stay uh, stay on track. And as Pepin says, it, it, it builds on, you know, you, you build on your strength and you attack your competitor's weakness, which is very much in, um, in keeping with the military manoeuvrist approach, which is, you know, find the enemy's weak point and exploit it whilst defending, you, you know, your, uh, your centre of gravity. And it also, that chapter then does, step four gets into, um, an idea about risk taking uh, and how how you manage risk, how you mitigate risk, and accepting accepting the fact that you can never rule out risk. So it leads on to stuff that we talk about later, such as contingency planning, and and it also indicates that occasionally you have to go back to your mission and say, okay, something's happened, something's changed. Is the mission still valid in its format at the moment? Um, and, um, and, and therefore, you know, am I okay to crack on or do I need a little bit of work here so that I can get on with the other steps? It's an interesting spin on risk too, because research has provided loads of evidence over the years that 
those organizations and entrepreneurs and business leaders who avoid risk actually prevent growth and stifle innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And I, you know, from a military perspective, I always encouraged my junior commanders to take risk. You know, my mantra was go now with a 75% solution and tweak it. Because if you wait for the 100% solution, somebody will get there first. Yeah. And I guess that spins then into step five, Pepin, in the book, which is around determining the best course of action. And I guess the question I had was, is there ever a best course of action? Well, that's a good question, Steve. But uh, if we take a step back, one of the fascinating things for me, you know, looking at the crossover between military and business is that step five is something which in the military, in the best practice cases of the military is always done very, very, very well. But in business, it's not done very often. And the reason is the following, you know, in business, a situation is typically where the leadership and the, let's say, top team develop a plan, and then basically give the plan to the organization to get done. But what we say in step five is that, you know, if you want to do it properly, what you do is you sit down as the planning group with the execution group and you get, you know, you brief them on what you want to happen and they are allowed to give their feedback. And, you know, you have to take the time to, to get that feedback. You, you know, you really have to also be open for, a reality check of your plan. And the SAS here is is brilliant because, you know, in their mission success cycle, which is plan, brief, execute, debrief, the, the brief part is so important where the guys that have planned go to the guys that are going to execute, present the plan, but get feedback from the people that will be executing the operators and then maybe even change the plan because they see that from a execution perspective, things are not well thought through or maybe even unrealistic. And this reality check that step five entails is something where as a, as a leader, as a CEO, you need a healthy ego, you know, to be able to deal with that because it basically would, it, it means that somebody may criticize your plan. You know, one of the people that you are going to be hiring or that you're going to be entrusting with opening the French um, office of, of a company that is up to now only sat in Britain you know, he may be telling you, well, this plan's not going to work because ABC. And you have to be able to accept that criticism and go back and, and redo the plan. So that's why step five is critical. And it's unfortunately not seen so often in business, you know, not well done in business. And I love the notion of healthy ego. Again, similarly, there's been a lot of research that, and in fact, to be fair, there's been lots of publicity and things written. Ego is a bad thing. And it is if it's overplayed and it's it's not helpful. But having a healthy ego gives you confidence, direction and purpose. And I wondered what your spin on that would be. You know, every leader needs ego. By definition, a leader has ego. But the problem that we have, and we saw this when we did the research, especially for the bad leadership cases, you know, many of these leaders are egocentric. And, um, and, and we see this, for example, again, in the military the special air service, I think, is very is a, is a great example here. You know, you can have great leaders that have a healthy ego, that are, let's say, aware of their own limitations, are open to criticism, and basically, as you in that podcast mentioned, you know, they don't have a, a centric ego, but rather a healthy ego. And mm. uh, I believe that that um, you know, good business managers, good business leaders, not 
necessarily founders, entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos, but the people that are entrusted to lead these businesses in the second generation, key is for them to have a good, healthy ego because it's so important to creating a learning organization. And that stops you from, at some point in the future, getting into a problem where you need to do transformation. And that also will help you find the other people around you who bring additional strengths and characteristics, which is leading into step six, which is about building and managing that excellent leadership team. Richard, this is essential in the military as well as in the corporate world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, this this whole idea of pulling together and then maintaining a high-performance team is is absolutely crucial to mission success, you know, as is, you know, spotting and nurturing potential. And we've already mentioned um, com- you know, committing time and uh, and resource to developing your people to make sure that 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 team that you've selected um, is then is then um, maintained, um, and developing your team to make sure you know they've 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 got clear aligned you know uh, objectives and values. Um, those teams need to be encouraged to communicate frequently and effectively. They need to be collaborative. You know, that sort of collaboration uh, breaks down the silos that can often slow up business. Uh, And that team needs to build trust through relationships, but it also needs to be able to learn and adapt. Um, And and we get onto that in in step nine. Um, But it is about about making sure that you get the right people and, and that you don't default to just people you know, but actually getting the right people and the right job and then giving them the uh, the responsibility. And step seven plays into that lovely, doesn't it, as as part of that whole organisational structure in order to get the right people in the right place to get the best results. Pepin, what's your experience of making sure that in that space you've got the right people? Yeah, look, I think in my own experience, very often you come into a company that is in trouble and you have to very quickly you know go through your steps and and act so one of the key questions is to look at the culture of the organization and to try to understand because often as i said before companies have these companies have been successful so do you for example find a customer-centric culture in this company or is a very technical culture it's on this it's important to understand you know what you're dealing with because ultimately as i said before the organization is a Another way of saying, you know, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, you know, whatever the size of the company is, you need to get them to do something different. So is it a dynamic organization or is it a company that is clearly in the comfort zone? You need to understand this because then you have to organize yourself to take that plan and make sure you develop the structure that has maximizing the business impact from what you're trying to achieve. My own experience, Steve, is that in general, smaller units are much more effective than, than large units. But the thing that ultimately guides you know, the structure that you're going to be implementing is what you are facing in the market. In other words, are you competing against smaller com- competitors who are organized in smaller entities? Is it a local market? So you know, once you have all this information, you can then develop and define the structure that you believe yeah. is going to be most effective. But what you need to do is is change it only for the sake of getting it out of its comfort zone. So typically, I find larger structures, more functional organizations, and typically 
I define then smaller and I like to call these business units that have, you know, delegated responsibility or as Richard said before, you know, where the, where the people leading these smaller entities take responsibility and have freedom yeah. and degree of decision making. That makes loads of sense. So step eight, Richard, there's two words in there that have really interesting connotations campaign delivery so for me when i read that the first thing i thought of is oh this is wrapped up in a campaign strategy i.e there's a start and end there's lots of moving parts all in the right places and of course the one thing that's essential in every business is you have to deliver what does it speak to yeah so you've got your plan and uh, and you're probably feeling quite quite proud of your plan um but but it, but but how can you stress test it and and how's it going to survive contact with a competitive uh, arena um, and um, and that's absolutely um, based on the, the military assertion that you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy uh, because your competitors or your opponents on a sports field, for that matter, they have a vote. Um, and have you contingency planned against their likely responses? Uh, you know, what, are, what is the market going to do when you introduce some new product or service in there which disrupts? What is their default setting going to be and how do you plan against that? And this whole idea of contingency planning is, of course, you can't plan against every possible contingency. Um, And I always in the military planned against the worst case and the most likely case, because if you've got a contingency plan for those two, anything else happens in between, you can sort of tweak it. But it is about wargaming and red teaming. And this is not confined to the military or to business. One of the examples we cite in, uh, in, in step eight was the way that the, uh, the British Olympic Committee uh, approached their, um, their, their medal chances and their, their matrix that was created by the likes of John Steele and Peter Keane uh, in, the, uh, in the committee, that they, they would go and pore over you know, twice a week to make sure that actually they weren't missing something. And if they needed a contingency plan against you know, an outbreak of you know, foot and mouth in the, in, in the country just before, what were they going to do? So wargaming and red teaming, you know, which businesses should do, but often pay lip service to become really important. And finally, it comes down to uh, accountability. It's the leader's responsibility. You you take the credit when things go well. I'm afraid if they don't, then then you've got to be held accountable. And it's all down to you uh, at the last uh, at the last count. When you start to get people to think about plan for the unplanned, the mindset will take you to what you know mm. or broadly what you can anticipate. But I bet that's changed in the last two years. Me included, by the way, got caught out big time with how the pandemic threw that perspective to us. And I wonder if in the future organisations will be more thoughtful to that because of what's happened in the last few years. I think, Steve, you know, step eight is, is um, obviously it's the execution of the plan, but it's so much more than that. And, and um, you know, I learned, for example, an interesting military term, which I believe is also very applicable to business, which is UDA. You know, you this is something developed, I think, during the Korean War, where they saw that the, um, the inferior U.S. jets were winning against superior um, Russian jets flown by the North Koreans. And somebody figured out that the reason was because the pilots flying those American jets were much more in tune what was going on and were, let's say, applying a concept that was later called UDA, which is observe, orientate, decide and act. In other words, they were, you know, able to adjust to what was going on in the field. So as Mr. von Molke, a famous, uh, I think, Prussian general once said, you know, no plan 
survives first contact with the enemy. And that's why we also emphasize in, in step eight that a leader needs to be close to the action, needs to see what's going on in the field with his plan so that he can adjust real time, you know, as, as Richard just said, have a contingency plan, but make sure the leader is leading that charge of that change of plan together with his team. Which is why step nine is also then so important, which is that final after action review. Yeah, and the after action review is something for me personally that was completely new. I learned this from Richard. You know, Richard can maybe uh, add to this in tech because he, he was very instrumental in, in bringing that to the British military. But this is, this is a very interesting concept. And this is, by the way, for the SAS, their last step in their four-step model. Though, you know, when you have finished your transformation program, be it, you know, a cost takeout exercise or a relaunch of a growth initiative, you know, you sit down with everybody, which includes the boss, but also the people that have been, you know, executing parts of the plan. And you have an open and frank and honest discussion as to what went right, what was good, but also what did not go right. And what can we learn for the next time? So it's seldom a business leader, I have to say, that is, you know, able to sit there in the room and take constructive feedback, um, open bracket, maybe sometimes criticism, you know, of their plan, and then take that and think about it and, you know, change things for the next time. But as I said before, this is something which is so important to do right because you create with it the ultimate learning organization. And um, I myself, you know, as I said, this has been a great, interesting learning for me personally. I have seen it in very successful organizations where this is practiced, um, maybe not so systematically as, as we describe it here in step nine, but it's definitely something I would recommend for all companies to do because it's so powerful. Yeah, and it stops repeating mistakes in the past and focuses you on building on the strengths that you've achieved as well. But also, you know, just a signal from leadership to do this, to, to you know, sit there and take criticism. I think it's so powerful for the organization because it just sends a signal, you know, that, that, that um, there is a culture of openness where if it's constructive, if, if, if it's objective, you know, people can step up and say, look, uh, boss, I don't think this is the right way. I think we need to do it differently because one, two, three. It's a really pragmatic nine steps. I'm really delighted that we were able to dive into them and, and get into them. And we'll allow our listeners an opportunity to find out how they can get a copy and dive in to learn a bit more about your work later on. But first, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. And this is part of the show where our listeners have become accustomed to where we get to hack into your leadership minds. So I'm going to come in turn and quick fire top three leadership hacks from you both. Pepin, kick us off. My top three leadership hacks. One you know, as I said before, absolutely paramount to get your first step right in a transformation situation. If you don't get that right, you're in trouble. Second, the plan is nothing, but planning is everything, you know. So I love that saying from Benjamin Franklin, fail to prepare and prepare to fail. And three, if you want to be a really good leader, then you need to have a healthy ego because that is a key to being very impactful and, and leading a learning organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, love it. Richard, what about your top three leadership hacks? First thing I'd say to leaders is is they need to learn to listen and really listen. 
not not listen to uh, to respond, but to really listen to understand their people, because otherwise they'll miss so much more than just the, the technicalities and the practicalities. They will miss stuff that involves culture, and culture is important. Second one is, you know, whatever you do, issue clear instructions. Let people know the intent, the why, and empower them to get on with it. And thirdly, you're there to make decisions. And and as as my first colour at Sandhurst said to me, you know, at the end of the day, Mr. Wesley, you have to make a decision. Good decision, great. Bad decision, regrettable. No decision, unforgivable. Yeah. And bad decisions lead to learning as well, you know. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Yeah, you, you've got to fail you've got to fail to learn and thrive. That's it, yeah. So the next part of the show, we call it Hack to Attack. So this is where we ask our guests to share uh, an event, a story or experience where something has particularly not gone well for them in their work or their life. But as a result of it, they've learned and it's now a force of good in what they do. What would be your hack to attack, Pepin? Yeah, look, um, first was when I was a you know first time CEO, I had come from McKinsey and I thought, as many McKinsey's do, that I could um, walk on water and do it all alone. But I was lucky because through fortunate circumstances, I very quickly learned that um, it's individuals that may play the game, but teams that beat the odds. And that's one of my been one of my mantras ever since. And the other one um, is that later on in life, I learned the hard way that not every mission is accomplishable. Yeah. So as a leader, you, you need to be brave enough to stand up to your board, sponsor, owner, and explain that this mission that you have been set is impossible and will not work as envisaged, you know, and, and not many leaders are brave enough to do that. That's very important uh, lessons learned there. And I can particularly resonate with the last because there comes with a fear of, particularly if you, you are leading somebody else's strategy, letting them know that they've also screwed up in the process. Yep. Yeah. Richard, how about you? Yeah, I'd hark back to a peacekeeping mission in Bosnia that, um, that very nearly failed. Um, I mean, very nearly failed. It nearly brought down the UN and uh, and and the and the British Prime Minister John Major offered his position up to the cabinet because of what had happened to us, um, and um, and we managed to muddle through, and 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 the town that we were defending did not fall, uh, unlike Srebrenica just up the valley, sadly. Um, but but I but I would say that what I learned from that is is you know the depth of of mine and other people's resilience. And how you have to keep working at that and keep topping up their resilience banks when times are tight. I learned to never give up, to keep thinking, to keep moving. And again, keep contingency planning at every level. Really powerful lessons, particularly in times of crisis like that as well. You can rely on those foundations to help you through, can't you? Indeed. So the last part of the show is you get to do a bit of time travel. And all the years of wisdom you've been able to attain in your more mature days you get a chance to bump into yourselves at 21 and give yourselves some advice. What would Pepin's advice to Pepin at 21 be? Well, by the way, I wrote the book or we wrote the book uh, or the the idea for the book came about of um, providing my younger self something useful and practical to work with. But uh, to, to answer your question um, directly, I think for me, knowledge and experience, you know, the realization that these are our greatest weapons in times of trouble um, that, you know, the good and experienced people that have trained it and done it a hundred times before, they are so valuable to you as a young person. And as a young, a young man, I would uh, advise myself to adopt the scout mindset. So be curious, be open, be grounded and learn. 
so to listen and learn from those more experienced around you because typically, you know, young you does not know it all, even if you think you do. And the scout and soldier mindset are those kind of different perspectives. And we can use the metaphor of almost a kind of a growth and curious mindset versus a fixed and closed mindset, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Richard, 21, I guess you were heading off at Sandhurst, weren't you? Um, I was pretty much passing out of Sandhurst at, uh, at 21. Uh, there you go. Uh, what I would say to myself there is um, the one thing I have really learned is the most, for a, for a military commander, but also in business, I guess, that one of the most important information requirements you have is time. How much time have I got and when do I have to achieve this by? And, and, and so I would say to, to young RJ Wesley at, no, at 21 or 19, get better at time management because I don't think I was terribly good at it. Um, and, and, and of course, I was, I was fueled with the mindset of most young infantry officers that wanted to go and earn their spurs, go and prove themselves. Uh, and and yeah, and go into 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 violent situations and um, and win. Um, and I guess what I would say to that young person is, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, very good advice indeed. So I've had a ball talking. I could spend the rest of the day diving into these subjects because, uh, as you probably already know, I'm a bit of a leadership geek, and you have an enormous amount of lessons that we can learn from. So, firstly, thank you for sharing them so far. But if our listeners did want to get a copy of the book, learn a bit more about the work that you both do now, where's the best place for us to send them? Well, um, <laughs> there, is a, um, there is a website, um, www.businessleadershipunderfire.com, where they can learn more about the book. And then they, there is a link on the website to go directly to Amazon where they can then order it. I think that would be the recommendation for your listeners. Perfect. And we'll include that link along with any social media links that you have in our show notes. So as soon as people listen to this, they can dive straight in and find a bit more about what you do. It just goes without saying to say thank you ever so much for coming on our show, joining our community here on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Pepin, Richard, thanks very much. Steve, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. I want to sign off by saying a thank you to you for joining us on the show too. We recognize without you, there is no show. So please continue to share, subscribe and like and continue to get in touch with us with the great news stories that we share every week. And so that we can continue to bring you great stories, please make sure you give us a five star review where you can and share this podcast with your friends, your teams and your communities. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Leadership Hacker, Leadership Hacker on YouTube and on Instagram the underscore leadership underscore hacker and if that wasn't enough you can also find us on our website leadership-hacker.com tune in to next episode to find out what great hacks and stories are coming your way that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been your leadership hacker